reading, first reading from 1 Kings chapter 12. But God's word came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Tell Judah's king Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Don't make war against your relatives, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, because this is my plan. When they heard the Lord's word, they went back home, just as the Lord had said. Here ends our first reading. Our second reading comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who has wronged us. And do not lead us into temptation. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please, play, please pray with me. O oh Lord our God, open our hearts and minds to the words that are spoken and also to the words that are not spoken. Inspire our thoughts, both the thoughts that we think and those that we struggle to formulate. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to set the scene for you. Solomon has died. Now Solomon's not the kind of great king that you probably have in mind. And in fact, Solomon fulfilled Samuel's prophecy that I'm going to take the king. It's going to take half of what you got. They're going to take your friends and your people and your family and make them your slaves. And on that day, you call out to me and I ain't going to help. Solomon was more in that line than it was because he did build the temple, but that took slave labor, labor that he taxed you. It took money. He made other fortifications and other building projects, but that also took money. And then Solomon kicks the bucket. So what do you do? He sends that his son Rehoboam, Rehoboam actually goes out to Shechem, which is Nablus today, to be proclaimed king by the people, he thought it was going to be easy going. But they said to him, well, we'll proclaim you king, but on the condition that you lessen the tax labor and that you lessen the taxes in our goods that you take from us. 
Well, Rehoboam didn't really like that. And so he uttered an insult, a pretty obscene insult. I'm tempted to tell you what it is so I can then say afterwards, I'm just quoting scripture. <laughs> but I'll leave it to you to go find out what he said. And so he sent, he said that to them, and they, and then sent his minister in charge of Corvée labor out to whip him into line. And they greeted him in the normal kind of way they killed him. So Rehoboam said, well, if you're not going to listen to this, I'm sending my army. And so he sent his army that. And that's when God comes to him and says, go home. I've had enough of this. Go home. Now, I know, I know you well enough, so I know this. I know that many of you, if not all of you, gave a sigh of relief Wednesday morning. But I'm here to tell you, you're not out of the woods yet. I fear that we will misinterpret this moment. There was an interview by Ezra Klein several weeks ago uh, with three, there were two of the three sociologists who wrote a book, or political scientists who wrote a book, and I was taken by it. And what they said is the polarization that grips our country has calcified. That means it's rigid. It's built in. It isn't going to change. So going up to the election, I didn't think much was going to change. They also say that you got to, that it's, we're paired. It's in parity between the two sides. And so the number of people that can be persuaded one way or the other is very small. And so we have a situation of deep polarization. And that they're in rough parity so that it means we're able to do nothing. Now this troubles me. It troubles me not so much because of the calcification and rigidity and paralysis. What troubles me is the menace which we view each other. And that is really serious. Many of you, I suspect, don't know that after I was a campus minister, I don't know if you know that, even actually at Stanford for many years, I went over and worked in peace building and became the associate director of the Stanford Center on International Conflict and Negotiation. And I've now worked for 35 years with the people of Northern Ireland, and actually 25 in Israeli and Palestine. And what I learned in that period of time was that it is, and just to sum it up in a little bit, it's not that agreements make for peaceful relationships, but peaceful relationships make agreements possible. Now I say that with a smile and think like I've really named, but I haven't answered the question of well, what in the world would peaceful relationships look like. And I think they take shape around four themes. And the important one, we sometimes we put them in the form of questions. And the important one we sometimes call the peace question, the most important one. And that's a vision of a shared future. Now, a vision of a shared future is not a shared vision of the future. 
in a shared vision of the future, we agree more or less about what the future should be. So we're negotiating and doing politics about the details. A vision of a shared future starts with disagreement and pretty much stays there and figures out how do you live with that disagreement. It says to you, when you hear those whom you consider to be on the other side talk about their dreams and their goals and their aspirations, do you say to yourself, there's a place for me in there. I wouldn't like it necessarily. I prefer my own vision. And I might have to grit my teeth every now and then as I live with that. But if that future came about, I could live with it and I wouldn't use violence to overturn it. I don't hear much of that in our political discourse today. There are three other themes that give shape to this, and I'm not going to talk so much about them, but they have to do with trustworthiness, like why should I actually believe, believe you? I mean, particularly in Northern Ireland, if uh, you've been shooting at me for 35 years and now you stick out your hand and I'm supposed to shake it? Why should I trust you? Why should I find you a trustworthy partner? In every peace agreement that's ever been struck, both sides feel like that it imposes losses and injustices on them from their own perspective. Or it wouldn't have been a negotiated settlement. And so the first, second, or the third thing is that we have to accept the losses so we can make the concessions that living together entails. And then finally, that we have to deal with the injustices that always occur as we try to live together with one another. And how can we pledge together to overcome the most egregious injustices that are imposed upon us? So those were the themes that we talked to people about in Northern Ireland as they tried to address what they call the troubles. Now, you can think of it as a civil war, but I think sticking with the troubles is a little bit more accurate. In fact, it's probably a postmodern civil war. It's the way civil wars are going to happen in places like us. But the troubles came out of the thing that you might say to someone at a funeral, which is, I'm sorry for your troubles. And so the troubles is a foreboding sense that never leaves you is that violence is right under the surface. Violence is always about to strike. And it's there everywhere, and it pervades everything that you do, even when you laugh together. And I think that kind of trouble is on our political horizon. Or if it's not, we better be really thankful and do a lot of work to make sure that it doesn't get there. My colleague, Lee Gross, who died about a year ago and whom I miss greatly, um, used to say, well, actually, I don't remember what he used to say. <laughs> so let me, go, let me bring him back in later when I remember what that was. But we live in a time where that trouble is, is, is with us and with us always. And so we have to address it. Now, now I remember what Lee and I said. 
when Lee and I lived in the first Trump election, we came to each other and said, there ought to be something that we learned in our time in Northern Ireland that would be applicable here. And so we said, yeah, we tell people, why don't you kind of work on building a shared future? And then it hit us. I don't actually know what that is. I don't know actually what envisioning a shared future in this country would entail, what it would mean. And yet, if we're going to move forward, we have to do so. Because the foundation of politics depends upon being able to lose and still have a future that you can live with. If it can't, and you can't, and you hear it in some of the speeches, we will not tolerate losing. We'll either say we didn't lose or we'll use violence to overturn it. That's serious trouble. And so what do you do when you don't know what a shared future might look at? Now what we did was kind of take the other things and look at them and say, what did it tell us something about the features of a shared future that might be important as we try to figure out and construct what one would look like? And we did. We came up with three themes which I think are incredibly central to today. Fostering dignity, safeguarding livelihoods, and encouraging respect. Particularly with respect, I have to respect your lived experience. I don't have to respect the opinions you draw from that. But I have to take your lived experience seriously if I'm going to afford you any respect whatsoever. The difference between dignity and respect is dignity is how I think about myself. Respect is how I think about you. And in the midst of all that stuff, which is critically important, is how do I feel like we're working together to safeguard the livelihood that is important to me, and I do the same for you. That's a difficult task. And I don't think in our country today we have that kind of relationship. And so it's critically important that we keep these themes in mind as we try to figure out how do we make our politics functional again because we have to deal with some pretty serious stuff coming up on the horizon. Now, I've given something like this talk probably in thousands of times. And every time I do it, I get one answer, one question. What am I supposed to do? I don't walk in the halls where I can have that, those kinds of conversations that you're talking about. I live a simple life, an important but simple life. What can I do? What should I do? And I've only come up with one really good answer for that. You ready for it? Pray. Pray. Several decades ago, I made the decision that I was never again going to preach from a written text. And preaching has to do with conversations. It has to do with back and forth. In the black tradition, it's call and response. 
Here, I'm not quite sure what it is, but talking to one another. And I would never again pray spontaneously that I would write my prayers because I have to be prepared if I'm really going to pray them to live that prayer. And so give it thought. I encourage you in your daily prayer life, whatever it is, and mine sometimes seems pretty minimal, but write them. I recommend particularly a book by W.E.B. Du Bois, Prayers for Dark People. That's what I use in early church. Every time I lead early church, the two prayers come in out of there, and I take them and rewrite them, add to them, bring them up to date, emphasize things. That's how you should pray, because you have to be prepared to live the prayer that you pray. Otherwise, it ain't much worth, not much good. And so I want to look in closing at the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. Here's how you do it. Now, I like the way that we have translate, or translated that in here, which is, our creator in heaven, holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, when Jane read the scripture, she changed it. The kingdom, if you didn't notice. But I'm going to do something different today. Because when we use this language, as important as it is to us, we lose something. We lose something that the original language, made, the points it made about that. And I'm not advocating that you change it back. I'm just saying keep it in mind as you do it. And it has to do with the first word, our creator, our father. Fundamentalists, talk about this as the Abba prayer, and I can't figure out why, because I don't use Abba. It doesn't say, dear Abba, dear Daddy. It says, dear Father. And I don't care whether you say it's father or mother, but it certainly ain't Daddy and Mama. And the reason for that is pater, which is what the word is, is also the patron, and it's talking about that. He is the Abba or matron, is the, uh, I mean, patron or matron, is the, is the figurehead for a household. And in the ancient world, your membership in the household was your guarantee of well-being. Apart from that household, you were on your own, and that was a not good thing to be in this world. It set the context for your dignity. It set the context for your welfare and safety and livelihood. It's at the context for dealing with one another in respect. Now the ancient household didn't often do that, but there is this phrase in the New Testament, the household of God. So what is the household for those who don't have households to take care of? And that was the early church. The early church was the household. It's, household is where we get the word economy from. Because it had to do with managing a whole set of relationships that made people's lives worth leading, that they could live with dignity and treat each other with respect. 
And so when we say our, our creator, just remember that's also our mother and father. Not our mom and daddy, but our mother and father who set the context for who we are as a community. And the center of that is not human mothers and fathers, but God. Just remember that. The second thing has to do with kingdom. And I think we lose something when we don't say kingdom. Sociologists talk about kin relationships and effective kin. They're what they call thick relationships. In thick relationships, I look into your face. And the obligations I owe you come from the fact that it is you. It's the obligation I know my, I owe my wife, Lissy, as I look into her face. Or I owe my kids as I call them by name. Or as I see you and know you and look at you in the street and look you in the face, I know what those obligations are. They may be different in each case, but I know what they are. Then relationships work on a different basis. It doesn't matter who it is. You put anybody here, here, this is what I owe you because you're a human being. Thick relationships are characterized by care and concern, then relationships by respect. I can't care about everybody in the world, but I can respect every human being I see because they're a human being, just like me. Now, what kingdom talks about is something a little bit different than either one of those, and it's halfway in between. It has to do with who are we in solidarity with. And solidarity isn't looking into the face. It's standing shoulder to shoulder with those as we try to build a future with one another. And so when I say your kingdom come, I'm talking about your solidarity, the way you care about one another, whom you cast your lot with as you struggle to survive. So are we ready to pray that prayer? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, we should pray it with all the meaning that it entails. That I want my daily bread, but I want you to have daily bread too. You've done things to me, and I've done things to you, and I need to forgive you. That mostly means that I forswear revenge. I can't forget what you did. But I can certainly not be willing to take revenge on you for it. The Bible calls that covering up. I just cover it up. Put it to the, I can't get rid of it, but I put it to the side. I don't make it center as I look at you. Blotting out is the other way that it refers to, and I can't blot it out. That comes to me as grace. When I cover it up, time and time and time again. And so are we ready for that challenge? It's a political challenge. Even more deeply, it's a theological challenge. Because we are called to live the prayer 
that we pray. And so as religious folks, as people of faith, pray. But know that what you're doing is committing yourself at the same time. And so as I leave you, I have one thing to say to you. Amen. Amen. Let it happen. Let it happen. Amen. 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 Amen.